Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After an off day on Wednesday, the Rays now getting set to host another team with a record above 500 in the Houston Astros coming to town for a four-game set. Ryan Stanek will be taking on Lance McCullers Jr. USF's VP of Athletics' contract is revealed, and he's making more than his predecessor, Mark Harlan. The Lightning met with unrestricted free agent John Tavares in L.A. on Wednesday. They were the final team out of six to meet with him. The free agent-to-be is going to announce his decision over the next few days of where he will sign. An ex-Florida Gators older brother charged with aggravated manslaughter after a dead body was found at his house. Germany has bowed out of the World Cup. The defending champion sent home after losing to Korea on Wednesday. And part three of our interview with Rays play-by-play guy Andy Freed, all coming up today on Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Steve Versnick filling in for Rick Stroud. And before we get started, I want to tell you about a special offer from Audible.com. If you sign up now, you'll get a free 30-day trial membership. That's a $15 value. And as a listener to Sports Day Tampa Bay, you'll get a free audiobook. Just go to audibletrial.com. That's spelled A-U-D-I-B-L-E trial.com slash sports day to take advantage of this deal. Now, Audible's owned by Amazon has more than 180,000 titles for you to choose from. Plus, you own your books once they've been downloaded. You can even listen to them offline. That's audibletrial.com slash sports day for a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook. So the Rays had the day off on Wednesday as they await for the Astros to come to town tonight at the Tropicana Field. Of course, they're riding a five-game win streak over the Yankees and the Nationals. There was a media game played at Tropicana Field today. Thanks for the invite, guys. But back to the real baseball. It'll be Ryan Stanek tonight facing Tampa native Lance McCullers Jr., who's winless in his first two visits to Tropicana Field. Mark Topkin in the Tampa Bay Times today had some interesting numbers using Ryan Stanek as an opener. Since they've gone to this game opener on May 19th, They've had the best ERA in the majors at 287. Opponents' batting average over that span is the best in the majors at 207. And their whip, which is walks plus hits divided by innings pitched, is 1.11. That's second best in the majors over that span. So, so far, I would say that the opener has really worked for the Rays. And if you remember back the way this was supposed to work, and right now they're kind of doing it three days a week, as they only have two uh, what they call starting pitchers in the rotation, Blake Snell and Nathan Avaldi. They're kind of making Wilmer font that now. He's being penciled in as a starter. So maybe they've gone to three starters. But at the beginning of the season, if you remember, it was Chris Archer, Blake Snell, then they were going to do the bullpen day for day three. Nathan Avaldi coming off the Tommy John surgery was returning. He was going to be the fourth, and Jake Faria was the fifth. Nathan Avaldi then goes down right before opening day. So now they only have three starting pitchers in the rotation. Meanwhile, Jose De Leon and Brett Honeywell in spring training, both are going to need Tommy John surgery. So some of the guys you expected to come up through the year to either help in the bullpen, maybe some long relief situations, or become starters this season were no longer available. So now they go to the bullpen day two days a week. Well, since then... Jake Faria is on the disabled list. Chris Archer's on the disabled list. And so they just don't have the starting pitchers. A lot of these guys aren't stretched out either. It's obvious they don't feel Matt Andrees is a good enough starter in the role they've put him in this year. So, And, and he struggled at times, too, even in this long relief role. So it's, it's really interesting because as other teams come through, you start hearing more and more 
about this, and you're starting to see more articles about is this the future of pitching in, in the majors? Is the starting pitcher going away? I, I read some comments from, I, I don't remember where I saw it, but from Andrew Friedman saying that you know he thinks more and more of this may happen, and some other GMs as well saying this. I know I've had conversations with some friends. I have a cousin of mine who's a huge baseball fan in Houston, and when the Rays were there last week, was texting me going, what is this? Why are they starting relievers in this? And, and you, kind of, you start explaining it to them, and they start going, oh, okay, kind of makes sense. I mean, we've seen that in the playoffs recently, you know, particularly the Indians the last couple of years where Andrew Miller's coming in in the fifth inning, the sixth inning, the seventh inning. Wherever there's a high leverage situation they need to get out of, they're bringing their best pitcher in at that point, not waiting for the eighth inning as he's the eighth inning guy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, pitching's kind of developed this way, although no one's really started relievers in this regard, so – uh, it really it's it's an interesting experiment. The Rays have always been on the cutting edge of trying new things. Some have worked, some haven't. The shifts, everyone complained about the shifts when they started them 10, 11, 12 years ago, and now everyone does them. People still complain about it, but uh, it, it's proven out to be pretty successful, which is why teams are copying it. So uh, another interesting note Mark Topkin had in the paper was Jose Alvarado playing first base. That was the first pitcher in Rays history to play another position and just the third in the majors this season. Of course, it was Joe Madden's Cubs who have done it twice. Joe's always kind of been that way. But I guess with the DH, it doesn't happen as often in the American League. But just I thought it was interesting that that was the first time it's ever happened in race history. Of course, they've had position players pitch before, and they've had a couple even this year do it, including Daniel Robertson. But just the first pitcher to play first base since the Yankees used Brian Mitchell there in April of 2017, and the second since the Brewers Chuck Krim in June of 1989. So oftentimes... And, and I guess I was a little surprised, too, that Alvarado didn't go to an outfield spot. They actually put him at first base instead. So uh, most of the time you think they kind of go to you know left field or right field where you're trying to hide them so the ball doesn't find them. So just some interesting notes from Mark Topkin in the paper today. Rays, of course, playing the Astros tonight at Tropicana Field, the first of four games. Ryan Stanek against Lance McCullers Jr. again. If you've been listening the last two days, you've heard Rays play-by-play guy Andy Free talk about how he got his start in baseball, how at age eight, he knew that he wanted to be a play-by-play guy, that, that he went to his first baseball game, his uncle took him in Baltimore, and he was hooked. That was all he wanted to do. And you hear the journey he took of going to games with his recorder and, and, and interning and, and moving his way up through the minors. You heard him talk about the 08 season and how special that was, how meeting Dave Wills, and how he almost, before he got the Rays job a few years prior, became the Angels play-by-play guy. Well, tonight we're going to finish up our conversation. It's part three of our three-part series with him. Rick Stroud had the opportunity last week before he went on vacation to talk to Andy. You're going to hear about his love of 70s baseball. And when I tell you he loves it, he sits in the booth almost every day before the game, and he's watching some game from 1970s on YouTube. And even though he's seen it three or four or ten times, he's still rooting for the ball to be hit a certain way or go a different way. It's pretty funny. But if you really want to know, he's a true hardcore baseball guy. He does he does love it um, and, and follows it religiously. He talks some about the current race, some of the young guys on the team, and how Major League Baseball has changed a little bit with the power arms now, what we see. You know, every bullpen is loaded with guys that can throw 96, 97, 98, up to 100, and it's just arm after arm after arm in the bullpen, and that's really changed over the last 15, 20 years in baseball. So here's part three of our conversation, Rick Stroud with Andy Freed. So, Andy, you're big, obviously, uh, about 70s baseball, or so I've been told, and that makes sense since you've just uh, gone over the story about the 79 uh, Baltimore Orioles and your trip to Memorial Stadium and how that you know lit a fire in you that, that still burns 
pretty brightly today. Um, it was an interesting decade, and you were very young when it started, obviously. Um, but I know you've I know you've studied seventies and eighties baseball as well. The A's, the Reds, and the Yankees each won two World Series. In the A's case, they won three in a row. Um, you had the Pirates at the you know at the start, you know, separated by different managers. Of course, we talked about them beating the uh, your Orioles, um, and that was about seven or eight years apart. Um, but but you know, it would seem that that the talent. You know, people talk about these dominant teams today, and we've seen Kansas City and other small market teams win. Um, but people would thought that in the '70s it was condensed around a few teams. Then, right? You had the big red machine. Um, we mentioned the Yankees and the A's. So, as you go back and you, and you kind of study that decade, you watch what was it about about the '70s when you when you look at '70s baseball that uh, that excites you so much? Well, I, to me, it, it's. It, it's like looking back at, at this sounds really weird, and I, and I but I really do honestly mean it. It's almost like looking back at old family pictures. You know, that, yeah. That's how personal the game of baseball is to me. And you know, you look at those you know, the way you might look at a, a family album and say, "Oh my goodness, look at look at the clothes we were wearing back then. Look at that butterfly collar. Look at that, you know, the the, the bell bottoms." I look back at at seventies baseball. And I look at the, the crazy uniforms, and I was like, oh, oh, look at what the Oakland A's were wearing back then. Or, or look, look at that powder blue that the Kansas City Royals. What were we thinking back then? You know, it, it, to me, it's almost like looking at old family pictures. And the, to, yeah. one, one of the greatest joys of my job now is getting a chance to meet, you know, not even necessarily the star players. I mean, it's always fun to meet, you know, star players from, from then. But even just, just the guys, you know, the, what my friend calls the common players. You know, which is always kind of funny, and I hope it's not insulting. You know, the guys that just rounded out rosters, because they all like to be remembered, and they should be. To me, they're, they're all stars. You know, they're, it, looking back at guys that were just, you know, your everyday player, they, they came to life to me in my baseball cards. You know, they seemed like, like real, you know, really interesting guys, and they were there for interesting periods of time. So now in this job of the Rays, when I get to run into, say, a guy that was a, that's a scout now that was – you know, a medium player in the 70s or the 80s, and talk to them, and not only about their careers, but just telling stories. Baseball is such a wonderful game of telling stories. It's such a, a, a vocal game, because we spend so much time together with downtime. You're in dugouts, you're in broadcast booths, you're hanging around the batting cage. It's a, a really neat shared experience, and you can always learn a great story, and there's so many incredible stories that can be told from the 70s and from the 80s. When I meet these guys now, and they see that I have an interest in it. And it's not just me. Lots of guys probably have interest in what their careers were. I love hearing that behind-the-scenes stuff. And when you're a kid, it, it, all of us as kids, you think back to things as, as more magical. And I still get that little magic, tingly feeling when, when I look back on YouTube of these games from the 70s or games from the 80s. You know, the NBC Game of the Week on Saturdays was, was a big deal. You know, kids today don't really understand that there wasn't baseball to be seen everywhere like there is now back then. And, and it's great now. I mean, you can see it on the app. You can see the replay of any game at any highlight at any point in time. It's fabulous. I, I'm not saying that the old days were better. But I will say that there was a, a specialness to the, to the Saturday game of the week. I can remember if the Orioles were ever on the Saturday game of the week on NBC with Vince Gully and, and Joe Garagiola or Bob Costas and Tony Kubek, I can remember thinking that, Oh gosh! I hope they play well. I hope they put on a good example for the rest of the country. <laughs> you know, it felt like it was it was an enormous moment if you were that game and the big announcers were there and the the big moment was there and everybody was watching you. Uh, it was a special thing, and 
I, I, I do think in a sense something is lost when there's so many games available. The specialness is lost, but look, that's just the way things evolve, and it's ultimately great that there's so many games on now. But the uniqueness of, uh, of the game of the week back then was really cool. And you know, now there's Sports Center and there's MLB Network, and there's so much attention. There's FS1 and Fox. But back then, This Week in Baseball, hosted by Mel Allen. Mel Allen, that was deal. it. Yeah. It, uh, it was, if I'm not mistaken, the, the highest-rated syndicated sports program of its time. Uh, it, people watched it. Saturday at 1230, before the 1 o'clock game of the week, everybody watched This Week in Baseball. And you know, Mel Allen was the wonderful voice of the Yankees. But to me, more than the voice of the Yankees, he was the voice of This Week in Baseball. And, you know, and they put together you know, funny clips of, of, of errors you know, goofy plays, and they put together the highlight montages of all the great plays of the week. And that was the only way that you could see a whole lot of baseball outside of your market, you know, outside of the game of the week. So that's, you know, the weekends were special for that. And I think those of us that lived in that era recognize what it was like, and, and, and it's different now. It's different. I can't say it's worse. It's probably better now. But for those of us that grew up in that time frame, it was very special, and baseball was king. Yeah, it was, and and for you know, I, having played amateur ball at that time, you're right. That's what you did. If if, if I had a little league game uh, or senior league game or whatever at night, um, nothing was cooler than to get pumped up watching this week in baseball, and then part of the the afternoon broadcast, and then you want to go out there and emulate and try to be, you know, one of those one of those guys you watched on TV every day. So um, it know, was it was I a really special it, time. It was. I mean, when I think about it, if I could if I could go back in time for one day. I'd want to be about 11 or 12 years old again and have it be a Saturday afternoon in the summertime and no school, and you'd get up and uh, you know, do whatever you're doing around the house and you know, play in the house. And then uh, we had, there was a show called The Baseball Bunch that would come on at noon, and I'd have lunch to that. And this week in baseball, and then the game of the week, and I'd watch that, and then I'd go outside and, and play baseball and play with my friends until literally mom called you in for dinner. You know, we never got tired as kids. You'd play all day. Uh, it would be fun for one day to be able to go back and relive that. But uh, that, that, to me, is childhood right there. Yeah, no, it really is. It's fascinating. Okay, let's talk a, a little bit about um, the, the Rays now, the team that you cover. And in many ways, um, I don't know what kind of parallels we can draw to what they tried to accomplish and eventually you know, wound up with those great teams in 08. But you do have some some young stars that have uh, that have come up, young players, I guess they're not stars yet, um, but we're starting now to see Willie Adamas and the Jake Bowers. Um, just kind of put in perspective a little bit, uh, I, this is a different kind of season. The Rays have beat up on the on the teams that aren't very good, below 500 teams, and done very well against them, but but not well at all against those that are, are contending, specifically, um, you know, starting out so far, at least against the Yankees and the Red Sox and some of those teams. So what do we have here? Is, is this sort of the process that uh, I, I think in its own way, um, and you probably have a better perspective, it's kind of enjoyable watching them put this together if you view it through the right lens, right? Well, I think what you just said is exactly where the Rays are right now. They're better than the bad teams in baseball, but they're not as good as the elite teams in baseball. So this, this season has been pretty telling on exactly where the Rays are in, in their development. They're better than what they were, but they're not as good as they need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. It is exciting to see a young core come up. Uh, you know, it's funny, Rick, what I'm hearing now are the same things that I heard back in 05 and 06 and 07. Oh, the, the Rays will never be able to compete with the Red Sox. Yeah, you know, it, it's history repeating itself. <laughs> it's, they'll never be able to compete. It's too large a gap. There's not enough payroll. There's not enough talent. 
they can't do it in that ballpark, blah, 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 blah. And we, I feel like saying, guys, don't you remember? It wasn't that long ago they actually did do this. <laughs> they, they, they right. did, to me, the greatest accomplishments for this franchise, even more than going to the World Series, I think the greatest accomplishment for this franchise is winning two division titles. It's winning the American League East, not once, twice. Being yeah. better than the Red Sox, being better than the Yankees, being the first-place team in this division uh, is really quite an accomplishment. And it's hard. A lot of things have to go right. You have to develop well. You have to draft well. And the Rays did not draft well from 2008 until, until who knows? I mean, they really haven't had a, a big number-one pick breakthrough since, since David Price. Uh, so they've had to make a lot of trades, and they've had to, to do a lot of painful trades to uh, – and look, the Rays could have really torn this thing down. Uh, they, they could have stripped it down and completely tanked, like, like they're accused of doing but have not done. Uh, I've been very disappointed, to be perfectly honest with you, Rick, and it, with, with a lot of the national media and their coverage of the Rays. I, I think their, their accuracy has been way off, and they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what the Rays are doing. has been somewhat lazy. I, the, the Rays could have torn this down, but they've tried to be competitive the last couple of years. And when you do that, when you finish in the middle of the pack, it's harder to rebuild. Stu could have torn this thing down after the 14 season and gotten rid of everyone and gotten down to a $20 million payroll if he wanted. But he didn't. He wants to win. He, he wants to see if, if this team can win while still being competitive, uh, build things up while still being competitive. So now we're at the point where they've recognized, okay, it, it is probably time to take a bit of a step back to go forward, as they say, and let's give this first base position to Jake Bauer. Not give it to it. He's earned it. This is not a graduation program. He didn't automatically come from double A AA to triple A because, okay, well, that's just what you do. He's earned it. He's earned his time now in the major leagues. Let's, get, let's have Willie Adamas at short. Let's see what we have in Robertson and Arroyo and, and Duffy. Uh, let, let's see what we have with Johnny Field. Uh, let's wait for that next crew of Jesus Sanchez and Justin Williams and Joe McCarthy and, uh, and, and many other guys that are in the minor leagues. It takes time. It, it takes a lot of time to, to build a winner, and it's not going to happen this year. They're not going to win the division this year. They're probably not going to make postseason this year unless some really crazy things happen. And it's true, you never know in baseball. But it's hard to be patient. But right now what has to happen for this team is they have to make these, these hard decisions of who is going to be the core and who's not going to be with this franchise when they win again. I think the Rays feel that this, this worm can turn, and they can, they can win. But they have to pitch better, and they have to defend better. And it's the same things that we went through in 06 and 07. And there's no guarantee it's going to happen. But one thing we did learn in 08, and this is recent history, is that when it does turn, I remember when Bert Blylevin came by our booth, we were still in the Metrodome early in 08. And, you know, we were kind of right now where we are then. Uh, or we were right about then where we are now, where there's talent, there's definitely talent coming, but I remember Blylevin came into the booth and he goes, you guys got a bit of a spark to you, and let me tell you, when it turns, it can turn very quickly. And I thought of his, that quote of his all through that 08 season, because when it turned, it turned fast. I think this team will muddle along for a while, and I think we'll see them make mistakes, and I think you'll see them improve. They'll get better little by little by little. This, this young team has to believe that they can go into venues like Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park and win. And I don't think we're there yet. You know, we go into Yankee Stadium and you feel like you're up against the world. This team does not yet believe that they can win. They will. Eventually, it's going to take time. But if, uh, the hard part about this season is that the young pitching has been stifled by the injuries. 
you know, yes. Brent Honeywell and Jose De Leon and Anthony Bonda were all going to be here at some point this year. So their growth has been stifled. And I, that's the one thing I think that concerns me more than anything else is that while the position players are now developing, the pitching is a bit in, in molasses moving forward. They're in a bit of quicksand because they haven't been able to develop because of the injuries. So that's just that's baseball. You're going to have to fight their way through it. And the Rays have always been, you know, a, a franchise, obviously historically, that has, you know, sort of questioned the the sort of conventional thinking, right? We saw it, you know, back when the Rays went to the World Series and, and all the shifts and the different things that now uh, all of baseball is doing um, and, this, you know, a lot of the sabermetrics and things like that. As far as their uh, decision um, to use opening pitchers at times instead of starting pitchers, some of that was born, uh, you know, it's the mother of invention is necessity, right? I think some of that was born from the injuries you, you mentioned. But, but what, has, what has been the general uh, reception from baseball? Is this an idea um, that, that looks like it's something that may actually catch on somewhere? Well, I'm excited that the Rays are doing it because it shows that they're not afraid to do something different. You know, I, I still the echoes of Joe Madden in, in my mind. You know, I remember him saying at the time, "We'll we'll never win if we're conventional. We're going to have to do things differently." Uh, and, and I think that's what's going on right now with the race. You know, when the shifts started, I remember the the, the most uh, uh, the greatest example of the shifts working were were opening week or opening week uh, opening weekend of 2012 when the Rays played the Yankees, and the Yankees were very very good. They would go on to uh, make the playoffs that year, and they're coming off a division title. And the Rays did these dramatic overshifts all weekend long, and the Rays swept them. They, and it seemed like every single ground ball that the Yankees hit went right to a Rays fielder. I mean, that, that to me was the crowning achievement, uh, the greatest example of how uh, overshifts can work. And nobody was doing it at the time. I think the Brewers were dabbling in it, uh, but the Rays were really the team that pushed it forward. They weren't, be, they weren't afraid to be made fun of. I can remember Kevin Long, the hitting coach of the Yankees, at the end of that uh, series saying, oh, the Rays were lucky. That, that, that won't work over the long term. Well, look what's happened in baseball. Uh, as crazy as that has seemed, now everyone does it. So I think it's the same sort of thing with, with the opener, so to speak. It, it, it'll, it'll look good sometimes. It gets other teams thinking. And, and just like sheep, if it works for the Rays, other teams will start to do it. The Dodgers have already done it once this year. They started mm-hmm. a, a young pitcher uh, and went on to, to starting guys after that. So it's, it's a little bit goofy because... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, it's gotten to be a little out of hand because there have been so many injuries. Uh, but I think the, the Rays are using it out of the situation, too, say with a guy like Ryan Stanek, where, you know, Stanek is a guy that throws 100 miles an hour but can't get guys out late in games. So the, the thought was, let's make him, not make him, let's let him be the opener, throw 100 at the beginning of the game, really air it out, and have him be lined up against a certain kind of hitters that we think he'll do well against. And it's hard to catch up to 101 in the first inning. It just is. And so far, because he's thrown strikes, it's worked pretty well. Uh, you know, with a guy like Ryan Yarbrough, it's worked well for him 
in relief, but he started a little bit also. So I think it's, it's almost like your dad out in the garage tinkering with the car. You know, let's see if we can figure something out here. Let, let's see if we can do something a little different. Let's tinker with this and tinker with that. These aren't, by the way, these are not fly-by-night, overnight decisions. These are things that have been thought about for a long time in this very educated and very well-researched baseball operations department of the race. This isn't something that, you know, Eric Neander and Kevin Cash had, a, had an epiphany one morning and said, let's try this. This has been in the works for a long time. You know, the, the things that the Rays did when they were different are now conventional in baseball, so in a sense they work against the Rays now. You know, when teams like the Yankees or Red Sox or teams with big payrolls do it, now they have the big payrolls and they have those little advantages that the Rays used to do, uh, the, the, the things in the margins, so to speak. So they're, they're trying things. They're, they're, they're doing something different. They're trying to, to figure out what could give them that little bit of an edge and let everybody else make fun of it and say it's ruining baseball. And then when it starts to work, guess what? Everybody else will be doing it, too. <laughs> they certainly will. Well, one guy uh, that they're happy to have as a starting pitcher is Blake Snell this year. What, what's been the biggest uh, change in, in him from, from last season, do you think? Well, maturity. Like, like, like every young pitcher, you know, well, coming to the minor leagues, you realize that there's a lot of guys that have a lot of really good arms. You know, I saw, I can't tell you the scrap heap of guys that could throw 98 miles an hour that never matured or never, never developed the secondary pitches, so they never really became great pitchers. You know, a lot of, a lot of what's pitching and, and playing baseball, for that matter, is when your maturity level uh, equals out with your talent level. You know, that's why I think there's a fair amount of guys in baseball that get good around when they're age 28, 29, and 30 because they've always had the talent, but they're, you know, look at a guy like Carlos Pena. You know, Pena was a guy that was kind of a failed number one pick, but when he got into his late 20s, the maturity level, the experience level, was started to match the ability level, and his career took off. For Snell, I think that maturity level is kicked in here in his mid-20s. This is a guy that, that had all the talent in the world, but probably just wasn't, in his mind, uh, ready to make that next step. And it got to the point with him where they would send him back to AAA, but he would just overwhelm the AAA hitters. His stuff is that good. And they would chase pitches out of the zone that a major league hitter isn't going to chase. So there comes a, a point of diminishing returns, I think, when you have a guy at AAA that should be in the majors, and they're going to have to take their growing pains in the major leagues and get their brains beat in sometimes before it actually clicks. And for Blake... It clearly clicked uh, in August of last year. Uh, he started to believe that he could be a major league pitcher. He believed that his stuff was good enough. You know, in his mind, he, he might have believed it on the surface, but deep down you can tell that, that he believes it now. And there's one play from this year that I remember most, and it was in Boston, or, or I'm going to say in April, and Blake was just dealing against the, I mean, the Red Sox have a great lineup. And he was just, he was knocking the bat out of their hands. You know, he was breaking Mookie Betts' bat. You know, he was striking out Xander Bogarts with just fabulous stuff. And he was making it look so easy. And I remember there was a point where there was uh, a soft line drive out towards second. And uh, was it Joey Wendell or Robertson made a really good play, turned it into a double play. And it was a really great play. And television got a really tight shot of Blake Snell, uh, his face on the mound. And he had, you can picture his face, and he had like a smile on the half, like a half smile. On the, on the side of his face, and you could read his lips, and he went, man, that was sick. And I'm sitting there going, he's having a good time. He's now reached the point where he's not just le learning how to win in the major league level, he's having fun out there. And that showed me that this guy is ready to take off, and he has. Uh, and, and maybe I'm making too much out of that moment, but the, to me, the, the visual of him smiling on the mound 
uh, having a good time with a guy playing a great defensive play behind him, that looked to me like suddenly there's a mature pitcher that knows in his heart of hearts that he belongs in the major leagues. Yeah, and that's uh, that's always a big moment for them. Um, I, you know, you mentioned power arms. Is that the biggest change you've seen um, since you've been, you know, broadcasting in the major leagues? Is just the number of guys that seem to come out of every bullpen now and throw ninety-eight, even a hundred miles an hour. It, it's weird. I mean, I, I, when I, I, talk about watching those old games, I was yeah. just watching a game from the from the seventy-nine playoffs of the Orioles and the Angels, and Nolan Ryan was pitching against Jim Palmer in game one, and uh, Dick Enberg is doing the game on NBC, and Ryan's firing these fastballs in, and they had a radar gun that they would show on NBC on that game, and Dick Enberg goes, whoa, Nolan Ryan just threw that pitch 95 miles an hour. <laughs> and it was like, it's a big thing. Well, everybody throws 95 now, <laughs> you know, two generations later. I mean, that is, you think of Nolan Ryan, that was the guy that could throw 100. You know, back yeah. then, it was, first of all, we probably didn't know exactly how hard those guys were throwing back in the 70s. Radar guns weren't in ballparks, but certainly, certainly uh, clearly, there's a lot of guys that throw harder now. Uh, I think it's a number of things. It's, uh, first of all, guys are conditioned to do it, and they're known as being one-inning guys. So they can go out in, in the bullpen, and they can just air it out for one inning, and not kn- knowing that they're not going to have to come back out for innings two or three. You know, relief pitchers, they were mop-up men back in the 70s when we, when we uh, were starting to watch baseball a lot. And those guys were, you know, 80, probably 88, 90-mile-an-hour junk ballers. But now you've got the impact of these power bullpens where, I mean, we just play the Yankees. If you don't have a lead at the end of the fifth inning, they go Chad Green to David Robertson to Dalen Batances to Aroldis Chapman. And they're all throwing 90 to 100 miles an hour. And, and I can't proclaim to understand exactly why that's happened. I, I think there are some elements to, to why guys being conditioned for it. The expectation has changed. Uh, guys that really weren't starting pitchers for long in the minors have just been conditioned to, to air it out all through the minor leagues. There's probably a number of things. But it is different. And these power bullpens are something because if you have a starting pitcher that can give you a couple innings and then you bring in your power bullpen, you, know, you look like that one-game wild card. You don't even really need a starting pitcher. You need a guy that will give you four innings at the most. And, and suddenly you just bring in your power guys and you overwhelm the other teams. So, you know, the game's evolving. It's not better or worse than what it was uh, back when we were growing up. It's just different. The, the game of baseball is forever evolving and changing. You know, it, it, when baseball started in the late 1800s, the first baseman would play on the base at first. You know, well, th- that, that evolved away from that. You know, things are constantly evolving and changing in the game, and uh, I think that's part of the fun of it. And to, to me, the, the exasperating part of baseball is that every generation thinks that, that the last generation was better than the current one. There's always this sense in baseball that, oh, it's going downhill, and attendance and ratings and this. None of it's true. The game is doing great. It's always going to do great because it's just the best damn game ever invented. And, you know, whether it's na- to me it's national pastime, whether, whether it gets the highest ratings or not, it's still such a large part of, of American life that, uh, you know, however it evolves, it'll evolve into something else. It's just, it's just the way that this game is made. For some reason, it's, it's locked into American culture. I'll get you out on this one, I promise, and then one, one fun one. Um, Kevin Cash has managed this team now. This is his fourth season, uh, and it, it has evolved it since, he's, since he's managed it a bit. What have, you, what have you noticed about Kevin, who was not a major league manager, obviously, before he got this job, and how he has grown over the last four years? 
Well, he wasn't a major league manager. He wasn't a minor league manager. I mean, he was right. he was never a manager until until he got the job at the Rays. Um, it's 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 been fun to watch. First of all, watching Kevin grow as a, just as a, a person has been a lot of fun. I, I think back to his his first year, and I think there was probably a bit of a sense of you know I want to please everybody and I, and I don't want to make a mistake with this, like anyone in a new job, you know. But over the course of time, his personality is loosened. He's hysterically funny. He loves to laugh. He, he loves to communicate with his play. He is a baseball man. You know, he is baseball's version of a gym rat. You know, he loves being, he loves getting to the ballpark early. Uh, he loves being around the guys. Uh, he, he loves to learn. I, I sense how he really embraces a lot of what the, the information of what the, the front office gives him. I think he and Eric are a really good pair, and Eric, too, for that matter, as, as a guy that's growing as a general manager. I think ultimately this is going to be – history will tell this being a, a pretty good pairing. They've got to win first to get there, but I do think they work well together. They're both willing to go out on a limb and try new things and don't care if, if people say, hey, what you're doing is wrong or silly or, or bad. They're operating from their brains and from their hearts. They're doing what they believe is the best way to make this team win. Uh, and I think that's the, the greatest misnomer about Stu Sternberg, is that I, 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 I can't believe, first of all, I, I, I know you asked about Kevin Cash, but I just want to make sure this gets out. You know, yeah. I, I grew up in a town in Baltimore, and you'd, you'd know this, Rick, uh, where Bob Ursay owned the Colts. And he wanted a new stadium and basically held the team and the franchise hostage until he got it, and then he was going to get it, and he still moved the team out of town. I compare that to what Stu Sternberg has done for the Rays, and it's the polar opposite. This is a guy who has wanted uh, a, a, a better ballpark for his franchise since the very beginning of owning it. And he, is, he has not been a guy to threaten the area. He has not been a guy to hold the area hostage. He has tried to work within the constraints of the government and the political system in the area. And I commend him for doing that. There are so many points in time that he could have yanked this team out of here or, or sold it to a group that, that wanted to move it, and he didn't. And I think he has treated this area with a tremendous amount of respect uh, and wanted to go through the proper channels. And I just can't figure out why he's getting, why he gets bashed so much as an owner. This is a really good owner, uh, folks. There, there are a lot worse owners around professional sports. And I, I think his heart's in the right place. I think he's hired people like Eric and Kevin and put them into position and has been loyal to them. Uh, and has allowed them to have growing pains in that position. So I know you asked about Kevin, but, but I can't separate just Kevin w w from, from Stu and Matt and Eric and Haim and James Click and those guys. They're working together to make this a good franchise. They want this to stay here. It will stay here. And once that new ballpark finally happens, I think things will really take off in, in terms of the respectability of this franchise in our market. But, you know, Kevin has grown. Stu has grown. Eric has grown. It takes time. It's hard to build a winner in baseball. And the Rays have had to kind of rebuild this franchise, but they've got the right guys in the right spot, and it'll be a heck of a lot more fun when they start winning a lot more games. And, they, uh, and the timing might be good because if they can get that ballpark in a couple years uh, in Ybor City, these young players will be uh, established and they can add to it. So that, that would be something. Okay, finally a fun one. Um, best ballpark food, but in particular, Andy, you're the guy that loves ice cream. So who has the best <laughs> ice cream? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I mean, Look, I'm a guy that spent 11 years in the minors. So, you know, to me, what you get in the major leagues is all good. You know, the travel <laughs> is spectacular. The, the hotels are incredible. The food is great. We're treated like kings. But, okay, having said that, the best of the best of the best, 
Well, you know, there's different ones. Minnesota, believe it or not, the, the, the Target Field has the best baked beans in baseball. I love good baked beans. They are fabulous. Uh, the ice cream in Kansas City is really good. Uh, the overall, uh, the, the omelets that you get in New York, this lady Franny who's been there since the old ballpark for many, many years, and she makes these, one, it's like your mom making you an omelet on a Saturday morning. They're, she cooks with love. They're wonderful. Uh, the, uh, the ice cream at Fenway Park is terrific. I mean, there's something great about every ballpark. You know, I, in many ways, I miss the fact that I never got a chance to do a game at Memorial Stadium or Comiskey Park or Tiger Stadium or County Stadium. But that's just timing. All the ballparks now are so enjoyable. Seattle. Seattle might be the best ballpark in the league. And I would love to see, you know, that ballpark's never had a World Series in it. I'd love to see the Mariners go on and, and have that place get some better attention. It's, it's a beautiful ballpark. Cleveland's a wonderful ballpark. You know, there's no bad places in the American League or National League anymore. So I know I'm sidestepping the question, but if I had to say best ice cream, oh, I hate saying it because I hate the Red Sox, but I probably have to say Fenway Park. <laughs> Well, grudgingly, you give that one up, but that's okay. From your uh, your trip from Memorial Stadium to, as a nine-year-old uh, uh, and then this incredible journey uh, that you've shared with us as a broadcaster, this has been really a pleasure, and I think Braves fans will feel that way too. And uh, we certainly enjoy your call as we have for all these years with uh, with Dave Wills and the Rays. And, and I know you've done this on a day that you have to call a game, so I'm sorry if I spent your voice a little bit more than we needed to, but we do appreciate that as well. My pleasure. Great being with you in Sports Day Tampa Bay, and uh, I'm thrilled with what you're doing with it, Rick. I really wish you all the best with it, and, uh, and we, we, I say we'll see you soon. We'll see you at a ballpark very soon. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed that conversation for the last three days. I know we had a lot of fun doing it. I know we've gotten a lot of good feedback on the first two parts so far, so please keep that feedback coming. You can always reach Rick at NFL Stroud on Twitter, or you can reach his email at rstroud at tampabay.com, or you can uh, tweet the show at SportsDayTB and give us your feedback as well. We love to hear it. USF's new vice president of athletics, Michael Kelly, signed a memorandum of understanding with the school. It's a five-year contract. It's going to pay him $625,000 annual base salary. That's about $100,000 more a year than his predecessor, Mark Harlan, got. Of course, Harlan left last month or earlier this month i'm sorry to take the job at utah uh, kelly who was hired yesterday there'll be a press conference on friday to formally introduce him but he was the served as the chief operating officer of the college football playoff since november of 2012 the lightning brass were in los angeles on wednesday to make their pitch to, to john Tavares, the free agent to be from the new york islanders steve eiserman coach john cooper and assistant manager julian brisebois was there according to canada's tsn they were the final team out of six to make their pitch to him of course, the Islanders got to make a pitch. It was the Sharks, the Stars, the Maple Leafs, and Bruins, as well as the Lightning. His camp says he was going to decompress a little bit, take some time to think about where he wants to go. Free agency begins this Sunday, July 1st, so just a few days left to decide where he's going to sign. Of course, if the Lightning do sign him, uh, there's a reported offer the Islanders have already made him of eight years, $88 million deal. Now, if he signs with anybody but the Islanders, he can only get a seven-year deal max. I don't know if Steve Eiserman would go up to $11 million a year, of course, with no state income tax in Florida. Maybe he can get away with paying less. You know, I, I think one of the interesting parts of this is, and it's, we're going to have the same conversation when it comes to Nikita Kucherov, who will, whose deal can be signed starting July 1st, but in, but he doesn't become a free agent, a restricted free agent until next season, so it's not quite the same as John Tavares or Steven Stamkos two years ago. But... Steven Samko signed a deal for $8.5 million a year here for the Lightning. Victor Hedman came in just under that. Is Steve Eiserman 
and and with the team, are they willing to pay anyone more than Steven Stamkos, who's your captain, who uh, you know almost became an unrestricted free agent? You know, how does that play in the politics in the in the locker room as well? I don't know if the locker room part of that as much, but you know, Steve Eiserman seems to have prices on and, and what he views talent and is not going to go above that. And that's kind of what we figured with Steven Stamkos. I mean, rumors were Toronto was going to give him a deal, you know, way above $10 million a year, possibly 11 or $12 million a year. Um, he chose to stay here. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure with Stamkos if, if money was the end-all, be-all factor for everything. I mean, obviously they want to get paid and they're paid very handsomely. But, you know, Steven Stamkos isn't doesn't strike me as the type of guy that was all about the money. I don't know about John Tavares. Of course, Steven Stamkos and John Tavares, uh, longtime friends, played together as, as youngsters in Toronto. Um, so, you know, it's part of that. And, and, and the no tax and the lifestyle in Florida and and maybe a little less pressure here have some, some say in that? Possibly. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what John Tavares decides over the next few days. And then if, if – by chance he does pick the lightning, then what moves Steve Eiserman is going to have to do to get that deal done uh, under the con- uh, under the salary cap? You know what trades, who, who what players could be dealt or moved? Um, you know Tyler Johnson comes to mind at about a five million dollar cap hit. If Alex Kalorn waves a no trade clause, could he be one? You know moving, he's at about a four seven five cap hit somewhere in that range. That's uh, not exact, but um, you know what moves he might have to make to get under the salary cap. So it'll be interesting news for the Lightning, whose development camp continues in Brandon this week. Uh, the three-on-three tournament will be going on Friday and Saturday, which is free and open to the public. If you've never been out there to watch that, it's a lot of fun. Friday, I think it's in the afternoon. I want to say two to four range, and Saturday it's like the eleven a.m. range or something like that is the tournament. Check TampaBayLightning.com; they would have all that info there. So. Ex-Florida Gator Janoris Jenkins had his older brother charged with aggravated manslaughter for the death of a music producer at Janoris's house. Now, TMZ is reporting all this, and Janoris was not at home. He's been training in Florida during this time. His older brother was arrested on a different charge in upstate New York, but has now been charged with aggravated manslaughter for this death. Um, the police aren't commenting too much more on this, although his older brother has been arrested uh, several times and served two other prison sentences previously. So uh, no other news on that, but it appears Janoris Jenkins, the former Florida Gator, was not around when this happened. Not sure if you guys are following the World Cup, but uh, the group stage is winding down. The final uh, four teams to make the group of 16 will be decided today. But Germany, the previous champion of the World Cup back in 2014, is out of the tournament. In fact, they finished last in their group as they lose to South Korea 2-0 on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Mexico got slaughtered by Sweden, so Sweden wins that group and Mexico takes second place to advance on. But Germany becomes the third straight World Cup champion to lose out in the group stage in the next World Cup and the fourth champion out of five to do so. You kind of wonder, and I saw some people speculating as to why this is happening. Um, it may be where once you win the cup, you kind of tend to hold on to, to older players a little too long, and maybe when they're a little older and slower and yet you're still loyal to them because they helped you win a cup four years ago, or maybe there's just a target on your back and, and every team's gunning for you and you're getting their best effort because you're the champs. Um, but it's kind of an interesting note of the world cup and how it's been where that the pre that the previous champions do not do well as the tournament goes on germany doesn't advance to the uh the next the second round since i think 1934 is what i read or somewhere in that range uh, the group stage just started in the 50s so they've uh, always advanced to the past the group stage since then uh, so kind of a big loss there for germany being out of the tournament 
But the group stage will wrap up on Thursday, and then we'll get into the elimination round of the quarterfinals uh, as we get down to 16 teams. Thank you so much for listening to Sports Day Tampa Bay. Again, I'm Steve Versnick filling in for Rick Stroud, who is in Hawaii enjoying the the sun and the the water and and with his family and in some well well deserved time off before he gets uh, immersed into Bucks training camp. Again, no news on Jameis Winston on Wednesday, so still waiting for the NFL to decide. Of course, last week, as Rick Stroud and others reported, that uh, Jameis Winston expected to get a three game suspension from the NFL. Could be more, but depending on a few things. But essentially, three games is what's expected from the NFL. But no official word from them yet. So we're still waiting for that. If you want to reach the show, you can always reach us on Twitter. At NFL Stroud is Rick's Twitter handle, or the show's is at SportsDayTB. Rick's email address is rstroud at tampabay.com. He loves hearing feedback from you. Please do. And if you subscribe to this podcast, we thank you. Uh, that's the easiest way to get it. If you just go wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's through iTunes or Google Play, maybe you like Stitcher or TuneIn, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, um, just find, search Sports Day Tampa Bay, find the podcast, and hit the subscribe button. That way it automatically downloads to your device or your computer every day. You can listen anytime you want, even if you're on a flight and offline. No problem. It's right there for you. That would help us out a lot. A recommendation from you to your friends is always helpful and appreciated by us. Again, I'm Steve Versnick filling in for Rick Stroud. We hope you have a great Thursday, and we'll talk to you on Friday. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.